Hello and welcome to The Double Life. I'm John Bustar, and this week we visit Lake Tahoe, California, and sit down with Mike Rogge, an action sports writer, business owner, and all-around enthusiast whose love for the outdoors has led to an amazing journey from the top of the slopes with Verb Cabin to the front pages of the historical Mountain Gazette. Enjoy. Mike Rogi, I'm 35 years old. I live in North Lake Tahoe, California. I've been an outdoor writer and media producer for the better part of two decades, which makes me sound kind of old, but I started doing this when I was like 15. Um, I co-founded a company called Verb Cabin. We're a creative media agency, and that company in January of 2020 purchased the Mountain Gazette which uh, we are publishing. And our first issue of this historic magazine uh, comes out tomorrow. So your timing's really good as far as your interview goes. Nice. Perfect. Cool, man. Well, um, I guess uh, what made you... I don't know. I'd actually like to start from the beginning and sort of kind of get an idea of what, you know, where you were born and sort of the childhood and what got you into, I guess, writing and um, the outdoors and, you know, kind of where you are today. Yeah. So I was uh, born in a town called Glens Falls, New York. Um, it's in the Southern Adirondacks. If you want to locate it on a map, you go to New York city and you follow the Hudson river up and the Hudson river makes a big left hook. And that is Glens Falls. Um, I started writing really young. My mom actually saved a lot of my journals. Um, I joke that the two things that I still love today that I loved when I was six years old, according to those journals, is I enjoyed writing and I enjoyed skiing. Um, I still enjoy skiing. I mean, I live in a ski town here in Lake, uh, North Lake Tahoe. And yeah, my uh, journey here is uh, not a straight one that's for sure uh it's been highs and lows uh ups and downs for sure um but yeah i really really started to think about writing as like something i could do for other people when i was in high school i was encouraged by a high school english teacher um i was definitely graded on a curve and i was on the wrong side of the curve so like i was maybe a little more talented of a writer along with a friend of mine. Like, so we were great a little more harshly than our other fellow students. And that got me thinking about, you know, what I could do with it. And so, um, it was like 2002, I started a blog on a website called newschoolers.com, which, you know, for thousands of years, and that's not, a that's not a euphemism. Like, I mean, truly like, or an exaggeration, like skiing has been the same for thousands of years. And then in the late nineties, um, led by guys like Shane McConkey and the new Canadian air force and a couple guys from Albany, New York, um, and some Midwest folks, like you, you started seeing uh, ski technology changing pretty rapidly. They started turning the tails of skis up so you could ski backwards. They start 
widening skis. They started adding this thing called rocker. So the best way to uh, subscribe, uh, to describe that for someone who doesn't ski is think of like a rocking chair and a ski not uh, shaped straight, but more like a rocking chair or a reverse version of that. And people started walking uphill more like basically like 2000 years of no change started happening when I was like a freshman in high school and I happened to be a decent writer and I lived in the Northeast where a lot of this stuff was happening. And so I got a front row seat to watch this all happen and try to capture it. So if my friends and I were at the Hill, you know, we could go see the early stages of line skis being developed by Jason Leventhal and Mike Nick at our home mountain. So we were watching it in person and I started blogging about this and like all good <laughs> media companies back at that time, New Scores was purchased. They got a budget. And so by the time I got to college, um, I had a I had a job. Like it was really cool. I was getting paid, I mean, an absurd amount of money for a web article. I was getting paid about five hundred dollars an article. Hmm. And it was it was amazing. And you know, the timing was perfect. Facebook was just coming out. And this is back in like the early days of Facebook when it was really earnest. Um, and so I would find professional skiers that I had, you know, checked out in the pages of freeze magazine, powder magazine, free skier. Um, and I'd send them a message and say, my name is Mike. I'm from upstate New York. I'm a journalist. And I'd like to write a profile about you for new school. And I think in one year I wrote like over a hundred, 180 stories. Wow. Um, yeah, I just, I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, while I was doing that, I was going to school. I thought I wanted to be an English teacher. Um, and just got completely derailed because a career sort of came and I mean, I did end up graduating with a degree in literature and writing, but, um, and I started teaching again, actually this year, uh, for fun. We teach a mountain gazette class at a local private school here in Tahoe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's like the, certainly the career side. Um, you know, personally, professionally, I have a pretty normal life, you know, two parents and a sister who love me. I'm married. We have a, my son turns two tomorrow. We have two dogs. Like it's all, it's not to say it's bland. It's certainly interesting for me and it's all I ever wanted, but yeah, it's not too much exciting on the personal front. Nice. That's very cool though. That's awesome. Um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I would love to know more about kind of just the mindset of, you know, that early wave of creating something, you know, and it becoming, you know, I don't know, I, I guess being the foundation of nowadays you see more like blogs and internet kind of, you know, ventures in that realm of reaching out and doing profiles about people, but you're sort of kind of, you know, at the forefront of something like that. What was the, I don't know, what was the mentality and the mindset of going out and reaching out to these people and kind of, you know, being there during like a progressive period, not only for the sport, but also just, you know, for entertainment and um, technology during that time? Yeah, uh, that's a, it's a good question. Um, so I wanted to know more, you know, at that time you would get maybe if you subscribe to all the ski magazines, cumulatively like 300 pages of information about what was happening at a time when like my favorite thing in the whole world was completely changing. Um, and what was really cool was some of the people that I knew or lived near me were the ones changing it. Um, I just felt like I could do it. I know that sounds kind of funny, but like I, I've heard a few 
you know, different podcast episodes where people are just like, they're enjoying something and they want to be a part of it and they know they can do it. Um, and then eventually like, you know, all professions, I got really competitive, um, probably to a fault. I'm sure there's a bunch of people in my industry that would say that like in my early years, I was probably a little too cocky, but you have to remember, I was also like 10 to 15 years younger mm. than everyone else who was writing. So, I mean, for better or worse, I thought I had a, a mandate to be cocky and say I could do it better and faster. And um, ultimately, the real reason why I wanted to write about skiing was I wanted to understand these people. I can't stress enough like how revolutionary it was to me um, to watch this technology change and change the way people had skied for you know hundreds of years. Uh, in we're talking a matter of like a summer on Mount hood or the horseman glacier up in Whistler, um, the sport would change. And I wanted to, I needed to know who these people were, like how, how they thought, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that's like a really important aspect for me as being a writer is I want to know how people think, how they look at situations, because, um, it just seems crazy to me that, you know, a couple kids in Albany, New York, who liked skiing, liked snowboarding thought if you took you know, the symmetrical part of snowboarding with the tip and tail turned up and added that to skiing. Like it seems so simple now, but at the time, like it, a lot of people weren't doing it mm. and then, and then to get on them and think, okay, I can ski backwards or I can hit a jump backwards or I can go off a jump forward and land in deep powder snow backwards. Like these things are just like, they're commonplace now and you can go on any website and find them, but it was pretty crazy back then. And I don't know, I think just being, being in the right place at the right time, I wanted to take advantage of that as best I could. Sure. What did the, uh, I guess, initial, I don't know, you said you did 180 of those interviews, which is a ton. And I'm sure you had a lot of, you know, different personalities and different mindsets. You wanted to know how people kind of thought about it and their approach to you know, the different, you know, things that were happening at that time, what did you learn and what were kind of the most important, you know, highlights of that period of time and the people that you reached out to and did it, I don't know, live up to sort of what you were thinking or your mentality about it? Or did you, you know, have like, oh, yeah. a, it did? It did for sure. Like, I mean, I, I, to give you an idea in, in a year, I interviewed um, a kid who was 10 years old, his name's Sean Pettit. He would go on to be like, you know, a phenom, if you will, in action sports. Mm -hmm. And I also interviewed Warren Miller, who was an icon in making ski films, who was probably at that point in his like early eighties, mid eighties. Um, and everyone, everyone certainly met the expectations I had of them because I didn't know a lot about them other than what I saw in the two to three minute segment they had in a ski film or maybe the like hundred word profile. And I would just go really long with these, um, hands down the, the biggest influence, um, in, in my career, as far as like uh, speaking with a professional skier was JP Auclair. Um, he, uh, unfortunately died in avalanche like five or six years ago. Um, but he was a part of this group called the new Canadian air force that again, they were a bunch of bump skiers. They saw a different way to do this. And I, I found that like, just throughout our entire 
friendship. Um, that was how we always saw everything. He, um, he certainly didn't have like rose colored glasses on, but he was a really optimistic person, really funny person. Um, he knew what was happening was revolutionary, but he would never say that, you know, like he, he kind of just saw it for what it was very, very present human being, which, you know, can be really difficult when things are moving so quickly. Um, but yeah, they, he certainly exceeded my expectations of, of what he would be like. Sure. Did the, um, I guess at that time were you, I don't know, did he have any intentions of getting into the sport and, you know, diving into that and getting professional or sort of doing with these people that you're interviewing? Was there any part of you that was like, wow, this is rad and I'm learning about this and it makes me even more stoked about it. And I want to pursue something that might be, you know, taking off and not many people may not like know as much about it as you did. Any part of you wanted to do that? Yeah. So, um, my, my senior thesis, I was given the option of writing like a 30 page paper or producing a 20 minute documentary film. And I made a film about, um, whether or not it was financially viable or sustainable to become a, a ski writer is like skiing literature, a thing, you know, I, I, I didn't know. I knew that what I was doing was really cool and I was making good money for a college kid, but I also knew there was no way I'd be able to support. At least I didn't think there was a way I'd be able to support a family or, you know, pursue any other avenues in life. Um, and I didn't want to live on a couch for the rest of my life. I mean, in, in the early days, like I would sleep in the back of my Jeep Cherokee in the middle of winter if I had to. And then I think marketing directors took pity on me and started putting me up in their hotel rooms because they knew they'd get a good blog post out of it, but also they didn't want me to die in their parking lot. Right. Um, um, I got really lucky. This um, company called Ski the East out of Burlington, Vermont, hired me. We met at a film premiere uh, the last semester of college. And we just hit it off. We went out, we did what college kids do. We went and drank really, really cheap shit beer at a crappy bar. And we just, I recognized in uh, Chris James and Jeff McDonald, who runs Ski to East to this day, like some kindred spirits. We, we've always joked we're like a little bit of a wolf pack, which is a really goofy way to describe the three of us, but, um, we, we all had a similar passion. We all really cared about, um, the people that we always thought that was cool. Like the tricks are cool. The locations are cool. The events are cool, like whatever. And I say whatever, cause ultimately what makes this really fun is like the people mm-hmm. and they got that. And they offered me, um, a job opportunity to be a marketing and sales director with, um, with their company and they were making ski films and their website had a blog. And basically I think what they saw was, Hey, if we give this kid a salary, um, he'll do, you know, for, for us, what he did for new schoolers. And and I did, and you know, that was it. I was really happy. I was not making that much money, but I thought this is what I needed. I was really satisfied with my work. Um, I was there for, for almost three years and then, through my work at Ski the East, I got noticed by um, the editor of Powder Magazine. Um, and he and I had a phone interview. I had to produce a video um, for them as part of my interview, just like a short 30 second video. 
And um, then I got flown out to San Diego um, and drove up to San Clemente where they used to be based. And it was the first time I'd ever gone west of the Rockies. Um, and yeah, it was kind of nuts. I got hired at Powder Magazine, which for a ski writer at that time for me was like getting, like being a comedian, getting hired at Saturday Night Live. Yeah. You know, you're like, you know, you're like, I'm doing this and I'm doing okay at this. And like, I have a good life and I'm like pretty happy. And I didn't really know if I wanted more or if more even existed. And then I got, you know, called up to the majors mm-hmm. by the people at Powder. And that was when my life like really changed. Dang. What was the, uh, I don't know, what was that whole experience of flying over there and your mentality of, you know, probably mixed emotions of, you know, anxiety and excitement? And what was that whole, I guess, I don't know, you want to walk through that whole experience and what it felt like to finally get called up and live kind of a dream in a way? So getting the interview was, I know it sounds a little weird, but getting the interview was good enough. I was like, wow, like I'll get to tell. I was most excited that I got to talk to the editor of Powder Magazine, which mm-hmm. I've been reading since I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, on the phone, you know? So I remember like telling a really good friend of mine who's also a ski writer, uh, you know, like, dude, I just, I'm just happy I got like they even know who I am, you know? And I figured like if anything, it would open the door for me to be a contributor. Like that would be kind of cool, write a couple East Coast stories for them per year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I flew to San Diego, I rented a car for the first time. I was like, I think I was like 22 or 23 years old. Um, so I was still pretty young. I was like fresh, fresh couple years out of college. I was certainly still like living a relatively college like lifestyle. Um, and so I landed and drove up to San Clemente and I got a text from Derek, who's the editor of powder at the time that he would be in front of a Taco Bell in a gold Mercedes. And my, again, you're just like, I don't know anything about this guy. I'm like, wow, that, that makes so much sense that like a boss, like the editor of powder would drive a gold Mercedes. <laughs> and then of course I showed up and Derek had a handlebar mustache and a mullet. Cause he lost a bet and his gold Mercedes, was like a seventies, like no offense to him. If he's listening, a piece of shit that yeah. was like converted into a veggie mobile and was <laughs> and like, was always broken. <laughs> and I and I felt a, a little more at ease that again, like I had with Chris and Jeff, like I'd found another kindred spirit in Derek. And so um hung out with Derek. We uh went to his uh porch. He had this like really cool spot, uh not far like maybe like a block or two from the beach in San Clemente. And we <laughs> destroyed uh, a 30 rack of probably like Tecate, like between his roommate, who's the art director at Skateboarder, um, a friend of theirs who would be later become a friend who was the editor of Snowboarder, Derek and I, and we drank, like I said, we just sat there and drank and smoked a bunch of cigarettes and talked about the mountains and skiing. And, you know, I was actually a little intimidated. I mean, I'd only... I'd only skied a few places outside of New England. And mind you, this is like the editor of Snowboard, the editor of Powder. Like they've experienced it all, flown in helicopters, skied powder. I mean, God, I'd lived on the East Coast. Like a powder day was like six or, you know, six or eight inches or so. And for me, like, I mean, 
I couldn't imagine what their life was like. So I feel like my stories are probably pretty stale, but, um, yeah, we stayed up really late and until like maybe like two or three in the morning until I finally was like, Derek, I'm sorry. I have to go to bed. Like, I don't even know what time our interview is tomorrow. And he's like, dude, you just had your interview. You're fine. You just got to go talk to some other guys at the office. Nice. And so that was, <laughs> yeah, that was it. That's rad. That's yeah. like a super, um, I don't know. Did that kind of set the precedent for the rest of the time that you spent there? Was it sort of that whole sense of camaraderie and um, just, yeah, kindred spirits across the board? Yeah, for the most part, um, the direction of the magazine changed quite a bit. Um, there was a, a story in the New York Times um, written by John Branch called Snowfall about an avalanche at Stevens Pass. Um, award-winning story. Um that avalanche was actually part of a feature that we were producing for powder. I was the managing editor at that point. I'd been promoted and my boss, Derek had left. Um, was this guy named John Stifter and he was involved in that avalanche. It was really serious. And I think um, we'd had a lot of wake up calls before then with a lot of these pro athletes, you know, I've been talking this whole time about how much the sport was changing and how, great it was at a certain point like we started to find the edge of how far you could push it mm. and we started losing a lot of these athletes you know including jp um but you know three people lost their lives on that trip um and you know we i think all of us the office felt we at least owed it to our readers to explain what what had happened and try to offer some advice from, you know, snow science experts on how to avoid avalanches. And I'd say from there, the magazine took a more serious turn. Um, and, and I stuck around for, for a year and a half of that. And we did, you know, like awards don't matter, but it is nice to get validated for your work. And we won some Western publishing awards, some Maggie awards, like for our work on that. And I was really, really proud to do that. But ultimately, man, like, I had fallen in love with Northern California. I was living in Southern California in a beach town. I wanted to be back in the mountains with people with more kindred spirits, you know, that you could meet at the deli, you know, you don't have to meet on a powder magazine feature with a pro skier and a helicopter. Yeah. And, and so I left and, um, I freelanced for a little while. I wrote for the X games, um, I wrote for vice sports, which is kind of how I started, getting to know all the folks over at vice. Um, I consulted on a documentary project with vice and the North face for NBC and the Olympics. And I think from that experience, that was when I realized that I could actually produce more than just words. I could produce film and photo projects. And I started verb cabin. That was like nine, yeah, eight or nine years ago. Um, and we started producing media for all the brands that we were working with at powder. Um, and yeah, we just, I just thought I could tell, I thought I could tell better stories for brands, um, with a journalistic kind of bend to them than just being like marketing materials. And we've been doing that for yeah nine years. Nice. Is that, um, I don't know with, uh, starting like a multimedia company and going into that realm of things, do you look at it now and go like, wow, that was a great idea considering just, I don't know, the repercussions, I guess, of like technology and sort of what that's doing to print media. And I guess just 
you know, little things like that. And do you look at it and go, oh, cool. Like, I'm glad that I went into multimedia or is it because, I mean, then you went into Mountain Gazette and opened that up. So you still have an appreciation for print. Yeah, I mean, I like. I like mediums, you know, I mean, like, I think, you know, for all, for all of its awfulness, I think Twitter is a really valuable medium. Um, I think it's harder to find the good accounts, but I think Instagram is a really great medium. Um, I think print's a great medium. I think painting and photography and cinematography are great mediums. Um, I've never felt that one was better than the other. I've always thought there's just people that are better at certain mediums than they are another. Like I know some podcast hosts that couldn't write to save their life. And I know some writers who have podcasts and they're pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, radio was quote unquote dead when the television was invented. And here I am on a quote unquote radio show. Yeah. We call it a podcast. And I think, you know, podcasts are, haven't even reached their peak or saturation. I think there's only, you know, where to come. So I don't, I don't have any uh, regrets um, when it comes to, I don't feel like I abandoned print or digital or anything like that. I just, I just thought I wanted to make movies, you know? Yeah, definitely. How long, uh, so that company has been around, you said you started about nine years ago, give or take. Yeah. It reminds me of how, old I am of how much older I'm getting. Like, it's crazy. It feels like yesterday, but yeah, it was, um, nine years ago. Nice. And how has that, you know, grown over time? And is it, you know, what were the, I guess, like plans and aspirations that you had going into it and how has that, you know, come together and are you sort of like, you know, happy with where it's gone and how it's been? Oh yeah. It's a ton of fun. I mean, Filmmaking is really difficult and it's, um, for me at least, it's really collaborative, which writing, writing is not, it's such a solo pursuit, Mm -hmm. but I, I really enjoy, you know, working with other producers or cinematographers or editors, um, sound design, musicians, artists, um, the first project that we did was with the artist um, Kehende Wiley. He's probably best known today. He painted the official portrait of uh, President Barack Obama. Oh, nice. um, and so this was before he'd, he'd done that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we went to Haiti with him for 12 days. And the way that came about was um, his studio manager and I are old friends and we were having a beer at um, this bar called Pork Slope in in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Hmm. And uh, she was telling me, this is no offense to anyone in Brooklyn. I I love New York. Um, but uh, she was telling me that it was really hard to hire people from Brooklyn to go to these third world countries because they'd be there for a couple of days. The conditions would be a little rough and they would fly home. They would leave. Hmm. And I laughed and I was like, you should hire a backcountry ski film maker because they'll go anywhere and do anything and sleep in a truck. Like they're, they're pretty hardy people and they know how to survive in tough situations. And that turned into her asking me to find a filmmaker to come with us. And so we went to Haiti 
with Kehende for one of his projects called the World Stage Haiti. Um, and I got to uh, publish a book out of that, which is cool. It's really funny. I've been talking about skiing this whole time. The only book I've ever published is about Haitian art. Oh. Um, and then we made a a 22-minute short documentary film about Kehende's process. And um, it debuted at a, a gallery in Los Angeles. Um, and yeah, it was, that was it. We were off to the races. You know, I, I basically proven to myself and to anyone that wanted to work with us that, you know, the methods I had learned in skiing could be applied to, to other topics. And, um, you know, it's always been about people and I just knew if I focused on people, I'd be okay. And that's been kind of our thing is ever, we think everybody has a good story. They just haven't totally figured out how to tell it yet. And my experience as a magazine editor has helped me kind of figure that out. So where our clients have been North Face, Eddie Bauer, uh, we work with this company. It's a commercial fishing company out of uh, Polesville, Washington. They're called Grundens. They make all the bibs that you see on like shows like Deadliest Catch. Um, their stuff literally keeps those guys alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and now we're making short films under the Mountain Gazette umbrella with Verb Cabin, which is really fun. We have a documentary. It's going to come out, we hope, on Black Friday. Um, we sent a small snowboard crew to Alta, Utah, which is, um, Alta ski area has banned snowboarding since I'm pretty sure since the beginning, maybe they allowed it for a little bit, but, um, we, when, when COVID shut the ski area down, we, we sent some snowboarders there to, to ride and film, um, not illegally, but you know, it's public land, but it's a, it's a fun story. Nice. That's super cool. I, um, I really like the concept of the international traveling and going over there. And then, um, was that your first exposure to like Haitian art and going to Haiti? And then did you, I mean, you must've had a really, really amazing experience to want to write a whole novel about it and to explore that realm and get deep into it. Well, I'll stop you there. It's not a full novel. That's for sure. It's, it's a short, I would say it's a short book and like it's a it's accompanied by Kehende's artwork and some photography from the trip. Um, you know, for me, uh, that trip did a lot. Um, I was, I mean, I'd obviously like written for vice sports, so I was really influenced by what my colleagues like Thomas were doing with like noisy Atlanta. And I didn't know Thomas Morton at that point, who's our editor at large at Gazette, but, um, I, I knew his work, you know, and I was watching like guys go hang out with Kim Jong-un in North Korea or mm-hmm. like go hang out with ISIS or, and so I think around that time, a lot of journalists were thinking like, Oh, maybe like it is safe to be a journalist in a dangerous situation. Um, and I got over to Haiti and I would say that like the first thing I recognized was that there's a huge white savior problem over there where people go over cause they want to show the appearance of helping. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, the best example of something like that is, you know, you, you see like folks going to Africa and you don't really know what they're doing over there, but there's a ton of photos of them with small African children, um, on their social media. Um, I found, I saw a lot of that, which is really eye opening. It was really cool to see it through Kehende, who's like a really well-traveled, super educated guy. Um, 
an incredibly talented artist who like pulls no punches. That was the best part. If like we, the filmmaker Blake and I like, if we, you know, misspoke or were confused about a situation or whatever, like Hende like let us know right away. And so for me, it was like a really cool education on, you know, what it means to be in Haiti. And like the purpose of his book and that um, exhibit was to show the beautiful side of Haitian life. Um, and it's a, his work is based on power dynamics and trying to flip them. So, you know, for, for Haiti, which is colonized by the, uh, the French, um, he would take, you know, French art of Kings and Queens and would put regular Haitian folks that we'd find on the streets, literally we'd find them on the streets and they would see something in them. And we'd take photos of them in a studio that we found in Port-au-Prince of, uh, of them being in the same poses as those kings and queens in, the, in these early paintings. And the idea was that like they were also, you know, kingly or godly or however you want to put it. And that's been like a lot of Kehende's, uh, you know, work. And that was, I mean, man, for just like a, a white kid who, who liked skiing, mm-hmm. you know, that was the kind of education that I, I think I, I didn't know I always wanted, but like today I know for sure, like that's, that's what I want. Like I always knew it was about people, but I think I just had needed to broaden my horizons. Like it wasn't just ski people, you know what I mean? It was like Haitian people and it was just people from completely different walks of life. And in the end, like there were certainly some things there that scared the living shit out of me. Uh, Oh, sorry. Can we swear on this? Yeah. 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 Totally. Okay. All good. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, there were some things that scared me, but there was a lot of things that, um, inspired me and um it was just a really fulfilling trip and i'm proud of the work we did over there yeah that's super cool did uh i guess i don't know i've tr- i'm originally from pakistan that's where i was born i you know came here when i was young and all that good stuff but the i think the one thing that i found recently when i traveled abroad and kind of had a similar experience in the sense of you know kind of just being um, I don't know, just exposed to that whole culture and identity of people that are different and are very different than America and just kind of having a different understanding. But then I think the difficult thing, at least for me, and I speak for myself, is coming back here and sort of trying to bring that mentality of the stuff that you learned and the experiences and, you know, um, I guess different appreciation or lease on life and trying to get back into the rhythm of how your life was over here, but also adopt, you know, the understanding and things that you learned from the people in the region that you're from. Did you find that to be difficult at all? Or So I think, uh, I, John, I completely agree with you. It's really hard, right? Like we want, I feel like this generation specifically wants every experience to be transformational. Hmm. Um, for me, there's a couple of things I remember. I remember being in Port-au-Prince and seeing that an ATM was closed because it had run out of money. And I had never seen that before. Um, and so there's another ATM like two blocks away. We were just driving this traffic. And, you know, for me, like traffic is one of the greatest things that can happen to you in a different country other than your own because you're going to watch like everyday life unfold out the window. And so... I saw this guy and he was selling bottled water on the side of the street and our fixer um, 
Manny was like, don't buy water from that guy. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, it's dirty water. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah. He knows that like, if you get sick, you have to buy more water. And that was like his hustle is he would try to sell this like dirty water. And I'm like, you have to be kidding me, man. He's like, no, no, no. They're like, he's like, you can only buy bottled water from stores here. And so fast forward, like two weeks later, we're home and like, we're at Frankie's, you know, this Italian restaurant. And they're like asking us if we want like tap bottled or sparkling water. And I'm just like, man, what a cool, what a cool choice to make. You know what I mean? Like we, mm-hmm. like you could, you could choose to drink the tap water in Brooklyn and be fine. Um, you can choose to drink tap water in most parts of America. So like, I think I stopped, I don't, I don't know what that did for me, but I know that like, I don't have as much like affinity for bottled water, but like, I don't know if that was what I was supposed to learn from that. Um, you know, in, you know, I've traveled to Japan a couple of times and space is really like a big deal in Japan. Mm. It's considered an honor for the person hosting you to be able to host you because it shows that they are prosperous enough to actually have space for a six foot tall American dude. And so I think about space a lot. Um, you know, I think as Americans, we're sort of taught to like, you want bigger and better and brighter and higher, faster, stronger, whatever, all the time. Um, I feel a tremendous sense of like, just satisfaction with like the home I live in and the amount of space we have and what we don't have space for and what we do have space for. And I feel really comfortable with that. So I think that stuff, I mean, I don't know. I'm super bad at remembering greetings in foreign languages. Mm. Um, that's always, it's always really pulled me out. Mm-hmm. I wish I was better at that, but um, I don't know. Do you, do you find it? Uh, you, there are things that you've incorporated into your everyday life from your travels. I think I try to, I mean, I think the main thing that I, learn is definitely gratitude, you know, coming over here and being grateful for just everyday things, which I mean, sort of in the same context of, you know, going to a restaurant and having water that you could drink. I mean, it's a very similar situation in Pakistan. Like you can only drink bottled water or boiled water. And, um, there's definitely groups of people out there that, you know, re like re bottle water or whatever, you know, and it's not clean water necessarily. So you always have to have your wits about you. And, um, it's a very, it's like an underdeveloped third world country, which, um, you know, you learn a lot from that whole concept, but also I think from, you know, being born there and coming over here and being afforded the opportunities of growing up in America and always kind of having that looming concept of like, Oh, that's where I'm from. That's, you know, my roots are my culture. And then and going back at an older age and seeing people that, you know, look like me and are the same age as me and have completely different lives and just thinking like, Oh, this very well could have been me if I never went to America. And there's that sense of, I don't know. I think that in a sense kind of drove me to journalism because it made me want to pursue, you know, I don't know. I felt like my purpose in life was to sort of give a voice to these people that, you know, weren't afforded the same opportunities that I was by coming over here. So a part of me was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to, you know, take my, you know, opportunities and blessings that I've been given and use that to help out the people who weren't as, you know, fortunate as I was. 
Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I think about it a lot. Like there's just people in your life that come into your life that are key in really like sending your life in the direction it went that led to a different direction or whatever to get you and I to where we are talking, mm-hmm. you know, today. Um, you know, I always joke that like, you know, my, my parents um, didn't go to college, you know, high school educated, high school sweethearts, still married. My dad's a small business owner. My mom's a homemaker. Um, they encouraged me to do a lot of things, but they just didn't have the knowledge base to tell me to go to college. And I, I always try to figure out like, why was it that I thought I needed to go to school to like further educate myself? And it's really funny. Ultimately, what I landed on was my high school girlfriend's mom told me I had to go to college or I couldn't date her. Wow. Right. And yeah, like, you're just crazy. like, that was it. But like back then, man, all I cared about was um, my friends skiing and I was a really shitty baseball player. Yeah. Like that was it. And that was it. Like I, those are the only things I cared about or thought about um, in the world. And it's funny, like this girl and I broke up like not long after. I mean, I haven't talked to her in probably like 16, 17 years or so, but her without her mom pushing me in that direction, who know you know, who knows what would have happened. Right. And maybe I've been working for my dad listening to your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Instead Crazy. of being on it. It's insane. It's uh yeah. I don't know. Just you know, the people that you meet and then the trajectory of where your life can go and simple like little tiny things that could change all that, you know. It's insane. Yeah. Um I guess, yeah, we should probably talk about kind of, you know, wanting to buy Mountain Gazette and sort of revive uh, a magazine that I guess from what I read, it was dormant for like 20 years or eight years, I guess, 20 years. And then I guess eight years of being dormant. And then you uh, kind of picked it up. What was, what made you want to do that? And you know, that whole story. Um, I think that the world is really into subscriptions right now. I mean, mm-hmm. if you have an Apple TV, you probably have like 10 subscriptions that go with it or an iPad, like, you know, whether it be like Apple Arcade or Apple TV Plus, Disney Plus, Hulu, Netflix, like whatever, whatever it might be. And my thinking has has long been that magazines, you know, when they say print is dead, it was just a business model problem. I don't think it was that people enjoyed magazines less. I think the people who've always liked magazines still like them. Um, but I just thought that the, like the business model behind it was a little skewed because the idea in the heyday of magazines was to have the largest number of quote unquote subscribers, whether they paid like 50 cents for it or not. And then you took those large numbers to advertisers. I mean, you could see the problem with it right away. Like, I mean, if you want to reach 60,000 people who ski, you can go to Instagram and for like 400 bucks, you can reach them in like three days. Yeah. What I think is missing is I think the quality of that content uh, isn't there. Mm. I mean, that's not, again, I think Instagram is a great medium. I don't think it's a great medium for large form photography. I don't think it's great for long storytelling. I don't think the internet is a great place for like super long narrative pieces or like experimental pieces or like even like I think the internet's a bad place for like grouping different types of stories in and art in one place. Mm. 
I think the best place for that's a magazine. And uh, my good friend, Peter Cray called me when I was in Alaska, I was in Dutch Harbor filming for Grundens. He told me Mountain Gazette was available and that the owner was looking to sell it. And um, I'd had some experience raising money um, for another venture that didn't go through, but I had a great advisory board that like was just telling me from like a lot of mainstream media, um, a couple outdoor places, but mostly like mainstream media outlets that were just like, yeah, that's you're you're right on. That's going to work. And so I just needed the right title. A lot of people have said like, why would you buy Mountain Gazette when you could just start your own? What I thought was really cool is, you know, I could start my own, but my own would not have the legacy of Edward Abbey, Hunter S. Thompson, George Sibley, John Fahey, like all of these outdoor writers who influenced generate, I mean, some of my mentors mm-hmm. um, in the seventies and the nineties and the two thousands. So I was like, man, what I would really like to do is I learned this at powder, like building on a legacy is a lot cooler than just building one. Um, so my thought was, what if I was to take these, like this history and then go find like the next generation of that. And which, you know, we know is not all white men. And my thought was just like, man, if I open this up to a way broader audience, everyone likes going outdoors. COVID was actually somewhat advantageous, which is a weird thing to say about a global pandemic that has killed millions of people. Um, but for the purposes of the Mountain Gazette, it gave me a lot of time. And I think it gave a lot of other people a lot of time to realize what they appreciate most. And what you notice across the board is people appreciate going outside their front door, being outdoors. And so, um, in January, I'd been talking with the previous owner for a couple months. And my thought was that instead of raising money, instead of like, you know, we all have this idea, like if you watch like Silicon Valley or anything like that, of like what a VC raises or any of that, like I, I did that and I was pretty successful at it. Um, and then ultimately like, I'm glad it didn't go through because what I did with the previous owner of Mountain Gazette is I treated Mountain Gazette like it was a dirt bike. And I knew what a dirt bike was worth, or I knew in this case, like, you know, it's a metaphor, obviously, but I knew what the magazine was worth. And so we haggled back and forth on the phone, whatever. I showed up in Denver before the pandemic hit in January, and I slipped him a check across the table and he took it. We had a Coors Banquet beer because we were in Colorado and that was it. I walked across the street and we signed the bill of sale and my friend Dan's trade show booth and he was the witness and i asked for all the ip the website the social handle the email list hmm. and the website url and i got all that stuff and then and then they sent me like 60 boxes well, i'm not kidding john like they they shut they like the world shut down and the week later set like 50 60 boxes of mountain gazette showed up at my house so i had something to do yeah so I poured through it and, and I'd say from like March till May, I was still trying to craft like what I wanted to do. And then we launched the website, um, on June 16th with, with, um, no subscriptions available, just prints of old covers, which I thought people would dig. We started selling those. We made a little bit of money off that. 
And that was when we launched subscriptions. We had a huge like group of people. I decided only twice a year. Um, I feel like everything's so in your face all the time mm. that we want to do twice a year. And, you know, that opens the door for us to be able to do more if we want to, you know, but two is definitely like where we're at and where we're happy right now. Got some interest from advertisers. And then um, that was when I met Thomas Martin through our friend, John Martin, who works at Vice and Munchies. And Thomas was great. Thomas got what I was going after immediately. And, you know, I'm from New York, but I'm from upstate New York. Uh, My wife's from Westchester County. Um, Thomas has been in, you know, greater New York city media landscape for a long time. And he's like, dude, I, same thing that my advisor just said, I think there's a lot of people that are going to be into this. And he helped open doors to a ton of new writers who were really interested in writing for outdoor. It's funny, like these writers who write for like the Atlantic or HBO or New York times or New Yorker, they're all deathly afraid to write outdoor stories, which is really weird. But I think it's like the imposter syndrome that I would feel trying to write for the New Yorker, you know? Right. And um, we started putting the first issue together and it's just been, that was the best thing ever. Um, and the issue starts shipping tomorrow. It's the first issue of Mountain Gazette in almost 10 years. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Did, uh, how was that whole like initial couple of days of having, you know, 50, 60 boxes of just, you know, pure history and pure, um, just, I mean, yeah. I mean, some of the writers that you mentioned, Hunter S. Thompson, Edward Abbey, just, you know, legendary writers and just, you know, people in general, just icons for, you know, uh, generations of people. Does it, I don't know, what was that whole mentality of having that, at your fingertips and not only having, you know, 50, 60 boxes of it, but also having, you know, the keys to the car, you know? Um, I, it was, it was, it was kind of crazy. Like, to be honest with you, what I mean is like, again, I just told you, like, I'm just this kid from upstate New York. Like I'm not, uh, by any means, like a, media tycoon or you know i don't have interest in like pursuing i'm always interested in hearing what else is available what else is out there but like i'm not trying to run like 50 magazines or anything like that so um on the hunter side what i found was he was just really good friends with mike moore Hmm. and um what i found is that all of these guys created the myth of Mountain Gazette and the legacy of Mountain Gazette. And then like, then the Mountain Gazette myth and legacy brought like new writers into it. And it was like this really nice circle, if you will, of just like, you know, the Hunter S. Thompson's, the Ed Abbey's would write really important pieces because they loved Mike Moore or they loved John Fahey. Um, And I understood that I have, I've had, uh, the good fortune of working with what I believe are some of the most talented outdoor writers in history that are current outdoor writers. And I, I think what I learned like just from going through it was that, you know, Mike Moore was known for being a good editor and in part because he wouldn't put himself into the pieces. He would let writers write with, from their own perspective 
And if it was weird, it was weird. If it was long, it was long. And I thought that sounded like a really nice way to edit a magazine was to like put the power in the hands of, you know, the writers. And then Fahey just developed it as like this authentic dirtbag magazine that was just, you know, I hate the word core, but it was just like, it was the beating heart of what was actually happening in mountain towns. Hmm. And I thought I could find like a nice, I would say like for me personally, as professionally, like I identified more with Mike Moore's approach. And that's why like we have some pieces in the magazine that are 600 words. And we have a piece in the magazine that is either nine or 11,000 words. I think we cut it down to 9,000 words. Hmm. So um, I want, I don't know. I, I, I know I can't be Mike Moore. I know I can't be John Fahey. I can just be me. So um, the legacy was cool. And what I wanted to do was use that legacy to grab new writers and inspire them to send me the best piece they had. Like what's the piece you would want to tell that you didn't have space or you're, no one's approving it. Like I always tell people sense of stuff that no one else will publish. And so um, the coolest thing about those old magazines is that, I mean, the history of outdoor culture is in there. I mean, the North face is in there. Um, this, you know, goofy climbing kid named Yvonne Chouinard mm. took out a, took out an ad, you know, saying that he, the, his new company, the Chouinard equipment company would be launching their catalog in the spring of 1976. Wow. Now this was in the October issue, 1975. Mm. So he was, he was getting ahead of himself, you know, but like, it was this thing where like, if you wanted to be something or someone or a company and outdoor, you had to be in the pages. Um, and now I just think like what I really want this magazine to be is um, I want to be a reflection of people who, who make it, you know, like I'm just here to be the arbiter and like help shuffle stories in with the art director. And, you know, we have a great copy editor and a great photo editor. And our hope is just that like it, it becomes this really cool, significant, cultural piece for for the people who want it yeah nice man that's awesome that's super cool what um i guess for someone listening right now and go wanting to maybe contribute but also being unaware of you know just like is it only outdoor writing is it all kinds of writing is it an approach to just you know diverse voices for all kinds of different stories and What's sort of the mentality of what you're looking for? So I'm glad you asked that, John. So it came to my attention during um, this past summer's uh, March and Streets um, and the Black Lives Matter movement that there are a couple outdoor titles who have uh, spreadsheets. And those spreadsheets are meant to meet quotas as far as how many men, how many women, how many people of color, how many. And I mean, it just sounds like a complete nightmare. Like to think that like a person is only represented by the color of their skin or who they love or whatever. And like to put that out there and it, it drove me insane. Mm -hmm. So what I thought was I would open up submissions this way. Anytime you walk out your front door, you are writing an outdoor story for Mountain Gazette. Nice. And that's it. 
So that's where we're at. Um, we don't care what your ability is. We don't care what your skill level is. We don't care where you go, what you do or whatever. But if you're outdoors and you're doing something and it's making you feel something, we would be really interested in reading your pitch. And so if you go to mountaingazette.com, you scroll all the way to the bottom, there's a little tab that says submissions, sign up. We are a really small team. Um, we're not reading any pitches for issue 195 until probably January of 2021. That issue will come out mid to late spring um, next year. And then you can pitch. I mean, we just assigned a story for issue 196, which is next fall's issue, a full year from now. And this writer just wanted a full year to experience his pitch. And he's a guy in Alaska raising a, a little girl. And uh, hmm. I just thought it was really interesting. And I said, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And we're, I'm available for email and phone calls with him to like help him out. And like, we're going to help financially support this piece a little bit. Um, that's the type of stuff that we wanted to do. So, yeah, I mean, literally anyone listening to this can write for us. Um, and our, our contributors in our first, um, this first issue 194 that verb cabin has produced is we have a 14 year old writer and we have a 86 year old writer and kind of everything you could imagine in between, um, I think the only thing that makes our that like ties our contributors together is their Mountain Gazette contributors, which makes me really proud. Yeah, awesome. That's super cool. Um, nice, dude. Well, as we sort of wrap up, um, I'd love to know. You know, looking back at who you were, you know, when you were younger and you graduated with, you know, like an English degree and sort of worked at a magazine and went into business and then, you know, worked for several big magazines and then started a, a multimedia company. And throughout all this time, um, I guess, what advice would you give to maybe like a younger self, like a younger version of yourself, you know, looking out into the horizon and maybe being discouraged or something, you know, how would you, you know, encourage them to keep going and letting them know that, you know, where you could end up is where you are now. Um, <laughs> the irony is that the advice I would give to my younger self, my younger self wouldn't have taken. Mm. So, so I think um, there is no greater form of learning than vicarious learning. Mm -hmm. And one of my advisors told me, um, plain and simple, if someone's doing something that you think is really cool or like they have a career that, you know, you think is interesting or some, a path that you, maybe your head is telling you, like, I want to follow in that guy, that girl's footsteps um, or their footsteps, you know, like just ask. That was it is like, I, I know now that like, I thought powder was so out of reach for me and really all I probably had to do was like apply for an internship a couple of times until I got it. So really it is just like hitting up the people and and I've I do my best like I've had a few kids like reach out to me on like uh or at least people who are younger than me especially with the pandemic because everyone's kind of reassessing their values in life mm -hmm. and ask like hey how do I do this how do I do that like I, I do my best to try to answer and what I usually say is just like make sure you're really passionate about what you're what you're doing 
Um, and it's okay if you like what you do because you make a lot of money. Like, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I hope that's not the only reason you do it. I don't think that's too fulfilling, but I'd probably tell myself to, um, to buy health insurance. <laughs> uh, cause I, I got really lucky for a couple of years, not having health insurance. Um, and be more active in my community. That was like something I wish I try to be as active as I can now, but I wish I had been more active in, in my nearby community because there's a lot of great stories that you learn from helping people and not just like the help, but like just people's life experiences. And, you know, like you and I said, like trying to get outside your comfort zone and, and recognize maybe how privileged we are, or how lucky we are, or, or maybe how unlucky we are, you know, I mean, I don't know. You, everyone out there has a really good story. You just got to be willing to ask them the right questions to, to find it. Sure. Nice, man. And then how can, uh, how can people reach either you to hit you up or to check out the magazine? And if there's, you know, subscriptions or a ways to get their hands on a copy of the issue coming out. Yes. You can go to mountaingazette.com where we're selling Subscriptions. This first issue is for subscribers only, and we have less than 150 copies left, which is insane. Um, you can follow Mountain Gazette on Instagram at Mountain Gazette, where we post old uh, cover images. It's a really nice change of pace for your timeline. Where I don't think we're ever going to change it. I think we're just going to post old covers from the 194 issues that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, if you want to talk to me, like Twitter is a great way to do that. I'm at skiing rogi. It's S K I I N G R O G G E. And yeah, feel free to hit me up, ask questions. Like I love, I love trying to help people out where I can. Um, thanks so much for having me on the show, John. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Double Life. To stay up to date on what Mike is up to, make sure to follow him on Instagram and Twitter under Skiing Rogi. Also, make sure to follow The Mountain Gazette and Verb Cabin on Instagram as well. Make sure to follow us at The Double Life Pod. Stay up to date and subscribe to the show. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Adios.